Hello, Strange Stories UK here again for Series 3, Episode 19. This is the rise and fall of the Messina Gang and the vice trade in London, 1930 to 1960. Well, about a year ago, I made a podcast on the murder of Tommy Smithson, who was putting on pressure on a gang of mainly Maltese gangsters who were led by Bernie Silvers. He, in fact, was Jewish. Um, They were to become the largest organisation responsible for vice in central London in the 60s and 70s. The gang were known as the organisation as the Syndicate, And as I said, they came to dominate the West End vice scene and they made a great deal of money from it. The syndicate had been made up initially with the dregs of the Messina gang, who had been the dominant vice gang for some time before the Messinas were forced to leave the country when their activities became publicly exposed. Bernie Silver had the ability to get people to work together for the good of business. And he was reasonably successful, considering he had to deal with some very difficult people. I listened to the Tommy Smithson podcast again recently, and I must admit I found it rather complicated. I think when you're working on a podcast, you tend to become quite immersed. And although the writer, in this case me, may have had a good understanding, it's not always so easy for the listener to follow on saying that it had reasonable download figures and I think it was the only podcast on the subject that had been posted at that time. I obtained most of my information for the Smithson case from the National Archive collection at Kew. This podcast will be constructed from some information from the National Archives but also from books and publications of which I shall give a list on the website. I've got a website now, and I'll put that on the uh, description for the podcast. Well, in this podcast, I thought I would move back a little further in time on the West End vice scene and concentrate on the period before, during, and immediately after World War II, when the business was controlled by the Messina brothers. And I'll make the story easy to understand hopefully. Well I'd also like to clarify some terminology to aid understanding. A pimp is someone who looks looks for business for a prostitute. He's soliciting customers for her and acts as a quasi-manager. A ponce is supposed to be employed by a prostitute as a bodyguard for protection. The Messinas and their like were a sort of perverted ponce pimps who often bullied women into becoming prostitutes and then ruled them by fear. White slavery in its modern understanding from the 1880s refers to forced prostitution and sexual slavery of women working in brothels. It would be called sex trafficking today. Although there was an an international agreement to stop this trafficking in women, agreed in 1904, it still went on due to the activities of people such as the Messinas, this causing the occasional moral panic when such cases were reported in the press. The majority of women involved in the traffic were professional prostitutes, or worked on the fringes of prostitution. However, there were a group of trafficked women who were made up of girls who had been tricked by the offers of marriage or forced promises of employment opportunities, especially as maids or artists. The traffickers would tamper passports and birth certificates and would know special spots to embark and disembark their merchandise without being impeded by the authorities. The port of Marseille in the south of France being a well-known example of uh, a port where the authorities could be easily bribed to turn a blind eye. Licensed brothels were called maisons de tolerance. These were state-approved brothels that were supposed to be inspected and regulated. Also, a quick word on the language used. It has been suggested that the word prostitute is a loaded word, 
and the term sex worker should be used in its place today. Also using the term girls instead of women or women. I've used the terms as I've come across them. In fact, quite a common term for prostitutes in the 1930s was gay girls, and that would have a totally different meaning today. Anyway, the point that I'm making is that I'm not making any judgments when I use such words. So, it was the 3rd of September 1950 when the Messina brothers were exposed by an investigative journalist called Thomas Duncan Webb, known as Duncan Webb, a.k.a. Tommy. He was an old-school journalist who seemed to tick all the boxes of a clichéd, hard-drinking, cutting corners, making-up-his-own-rules type of journalist. Webb seemed to get himself in all types of jams and situations, which today would see him sacked and denied a press card. He had various jobs with different newspapers, only to leave under a cloud when his unorthodox methods came to light. Although Webb did seem to make a difference and brought cases to the public's attention. Webb may have had criminal links and took chances that others would have backed away from. Webb having friends who were criminals, including the crime boss Billy Hill, who held pimps and ponces in contempt, whether we charged them money for operating in his zone of control in the West End of London. Webb wasn't an imposing character. He was 5'9", had ginger hair flattened with brill cream, pockmarked face, often puffy with drink. He also suffered health issues and was to have an early death aged 42 in 1958. The main point is that Webb knew no fear when he was following a story and he knew how to capture his reader's interest. When researching this podcast, I discovered that Webb married the ex-wife of Donald Hume, who was another recent podcast subject. Webb had been criticised in the Hume case by the judge for interfering with a witness, which I suppose was Cynthia, who was a stylish woman who members tended to be intrigued by. When Hume was convicted, Cynthia and Webb were married, and Webb told the story of Hume's crimes, which fascinated the readers of the Sunday People. That was the newspaper he was working for at the time. In fact, this story got him the job of chief crime reporter on the paper that had a circulation at that time of 5.2 million people. The crime reporter was top job. So Webb, a friend of gangsters, was an, influ- an influential opinion maker at the time. Webb actually ghost-wrote Billy Hill's 1955 biography, Billy Hill having featured in a couple of previous podcasts. He's perhaps the best-known criminal in the UK in the 1950s. He liked to think that he was a character similar to the Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart, seen to be Hill's role model. Webb also dated the acid bath murder John George Haig's ex-girlfriend, presumably to get a new take on the story. So, Mr Webb wasn't shy in going into deep role for his investigative journalism, and when investigating the Messina brothers, he had to meet with prostitutes to obtain information. He said, or he always reported, that after obtaining the information that he needed from them, he made his excuses and left, which was not universally believed. Some people thought Duncan Webb was a sleazy character, But he said in his autobiography, Deadline for Crime, that people speak to him because they know that he can't be bought, that he's not afraid, that he keeps his word. In his Sunny People's headline uh, story in September 1950, Webb exposed the Messina Brothers' London vice rackets at a time that were thriving during post-war Britain's austerity. Webb described the brothers as the four debased men with an empire of vice which is a disgrace to London. Prostitution was noticeable in central London, especially in the main London railway stations in the 1950s. In the past, when the police attempted a crackdown on vice, they had been criticised for their zealous interpretation of the law, and many cases were successfully appealed. The law on prostitution was confused and the police backed off, allowing vice to flourish.
It was estimated that in 1950 there were 3,000 prostitutes working in central London. And some of the police working in central London were corrupt and they were known to take bribes. The day after the story appeared on, in the Sunday newspaper, or the Sunday People newspaper, Duncan Webb was attacked in the street by a thug who described himself as a, a pal of the Messinas and it was about time that you journalists were done proper. So it seemed to like a more innocent age, as today one can imagine a drive-by shooter, uh, shooter, scooter shooting with no message. Webb was used to physical assault and attempted killings and accepted it as part of his life. The Messina story ran for some weeks, a different instalment each week, and Webb pointed out to his readers that the Messina gang members were known to the police, but nothing was ever done about them. Webb's journalism forced the police to act, and the four Messina brothers, named in the article, were forced to leave the country, although Webb pursued them in Europe, being bankrolled by the Sunday People newspaper. Before he had exposed them, the Messinas were aware that they were being investigated, and considered killing Webb, or perhaps blinding him. Then they settled on the idea of feeding him disinformation, that he would publish and leave himself open to legal action and then try and frame him for a criminal offence. This was attempted, but Webb was a wily journalist and managed to stay one jump ahead until he published his article catching the Messina's unaware. The Messina's father was Giuseppe Messina. He was born in Sicily, next to the volcano Mount Etna, where today there is one of Etna's ski resorts. Giuseppe was born in 1878, and was the son of pheasants, and was known for his untruthfulness. He was said to lie for the sake of lying, a trait he said to have passed on to his sons. The Messinas lied about everything, to an extent that it's difficult to be sure of their ages and the actual places of their birth. Even their gravestones are thought to have incorrect dates carved on them. Giuseppe, known as Gino, was trained as a furniture restorer, and got involved in the business of prostitution at an early age. And he soon fell out with a local mafia and had to leave in a hurry in 1896 when he left for the island of Malta. Malta's capital, Valletta, was a base for the Royal Navy and a stop-off for troop ships heading for the Suez Canal. As a result, Valletta had to cater for the troops' rest and recreation, their R&R. And the thoroughfare, Stada Stretta, also known as the Gut, had plenty of bars and brothels. Gino got the job in a brothel and married a local girl, Virginia de Bono, although there seems to be some doubt whether they actually did get married. But they had a couple of sons whilst they lived in Malta. In 1898 they had Salvatore, Salvatore Messina, later be known as Arthur Evans, and three years later in 1901 they had Alfredo Messina who was later known as Alfred Martin. As these two boys had been born in Malta, it was thought they could claim British citizenship. Although there was some doubt over this, they were never stripped of their British citizenship. By 1904, Gino had learnt how a brothel operated and decided, as did a lot of other pimps in Malta, to move to Alexandria in Egypt, as it seemed to present better business opportunities and more money to be made. The British had occupied Egypt since 1882 and had regulated prostitution in an attempt to stop troops contracting sexual disease and stopping white slavery and the use of children. As prostitution was tolerated in Egypt and there was a great demand for it, Gino thought that he could exploit the new regulations and he managed to outwit the British authorities, along with the great numbers of Maltese, Italian and French pimps who all prospered through their ruthless business plans when opening brothels. The the regularisation of prostitution tended to institutionalise it. There was the establishment of state-licensed brothels in urban areas, where registered sex workers would offer their services under close surveillance by the authorities, who issued prostitution ID cards. This was known as the French system, as it was a method first used in France before being copied by other countries, such as Egypt. 
The women working in in state brothels were often had no support network and were often brutally treated. The women were at the mercy of the pimps and the brothel housekeepers. Gina Massino's specialism was to trick and bring young women into the profession. Girls would be abducted, then forced to become prostitutes. They'd be kept up, locked up, beaten, raped until they became compliant. It was suggested that some were maimed and even killed as examples to others. Life was cheap in Egypt at that time, and many of the women were descendants or chattel slaves from the Ottoman Empire. And following the abolition of slavery in 1877, many recently freed slave slaves turned to prostitution to survive. It wasn't just females. Hundreds of boys were involved, being exploited as sex workers, or sent to the provinces as virtual slaves to local landowners. Girls were kidnapped and sold or pawned by their parents. Gino and Virginia had three more sons during their stay in Egypt. In 1908 they had Eugenio, later known as Edward Marshall. In 1910 they had Attilio, later known as Raymond Maynard. And in 1915 they had Carmelo, later known as Charles Maitland. These three sons were not eligible for British citizenship and although there was some doubt about the other two, who had been registered at the Italian consulate to an Italian father, which in effect would make them Italian citizens. Gina Messina was a white slaver, a sex trafficker, who was to teach his sons the business of white slavery. They were growing up in the company of prostitutes each day, and it became normal behaviour for them. All five sons would have become involved in the family business. It was a totally corrupt family. World War I gave the excuse for Gino to expand and he opened a chain of brothels to profit from the troops and the general lawlessness at the time. In 1922 Egypt became independent from the British and by 1932 there was a crackdown on vice in Egypt and this gave the authorities the excuse to get rid of the Messina family who were kicked out. Somehow, no doubt involving bribery, the Messinas all managed to get hold of British passports which had been first issued during World War I, and there was not an established system for checking eligibility. The family moved back to Malta, but eventually the family would all make their way to the UK. When the brothers came to England, it was to carry out the only business that they knew, brothel keeping and running prostitutes. It was a fortuitous move for them, as the laws governing prostitution in the UK in the 1930s were confused and easy to exploit. All five sons married women who were prostitutes to get them British citizenship and they were put to work as soon as they arrived in the UK. Eugenio, or Edward Marshall, married André Astia, also known as Colette, in 1932 and they moved to England uh, in 1934. Within a month Colette had her first conviction for soliciting and by 1956 she had 128 So Eugenio being the first brother to come to London and he was generally thought to be the main decision maker between the brothers. Between 1934 and 1937 Eugenio was making frequent trips to Europe alone but always returning with an attractive young woman who he persuaded to uh, come to the UK. Alfredo, Alfred Martin, came across in early 1935 newly married to Mary, also known as Marcel. By June 1956, she had 15 convictions, 122 by 1951. Alfredo, or Alfred, like his brothers, made trips to Europe to recruit prostitutes. The other brothers all came across. Salvatore, or Arthur Evans, married a prostitute named Maria Champentier. Attilio, Raymond Maynard, his wife was a Scottish prostitute, Rabina Dixon Torrance. And Carmelo, or Charles Maitland, married a prostitute named Ida Pumiru. All the brothers seemed quite happy with their wives, living off their immoral earnings, driving them to work on the streets and in brothels. It seemed to be normal behaviour to them. 
Alfredo did stop living with Marcel and took up with her friend Hermione Hinden as his common-law wife, but they all kept on good terms. The brothers all carried weapons, which they made the women that they were with carry in their handbags, and they had hard muscle to call on when needed. But they were not physically imposing. They were said to be arrogant. Carmelo and Eugenio, in particular, were described as being short and dumpy. For many women working as prostitutes in the UK in the 1930s, they were not breaking any laws, as long as they did not solicit on the street. Many women had built up a client base who they entertained in their own home. And this was not an offence. It was only an offence if two women worked a property. The definition of the property then became a brothel. Most women working on the game were known in the local area and had no need of a pimp or a ponce. This was the service that was being offered by the Messinas. But the Messinas were traffickers and they would bring in their own women from abroad. Women that could be manipulated and controlled by them. The second reason that it was a good timing for the Messinas to have arrived in London is because most British criminals were not interested in vice. They looked down on it. It was left to foreigners to run the vice rings in London. And by 1935 there was something of a vacuum, as it all died out, killing each other in the time period of 1925 to 1935. In 1935 was the very time the Messinas started operating in London. There were some colourful stories regarding these people, such as Charles Ballada, Mad Emile Berthier, Juan Castanar, Casimir uh, Micheletti, Eddie Manning, Red Max Cassell. These were the ringleaders, although there was lots of supporting characters who acted as pimps and ponces. Emile Allard was better known as Red Max Cassell. Cassell's gang was supposed to be the dominant gang in the West End by 1930, after gang feuds had left the field open to them. Cassell was a major player in organising marriages of convenience, which was thought to be involved, and he was thought to be involved with an international gang of white slavers, bringing in foreign women to work in London, in the Tottenham Court Road and Soho areas. The Cassell gang members had names such as T.T. the Big-Footed, Marriott of the Big Eyes, Albert the Arab, Charlotte Scarface, Coco the Animal, Bibi the Bitter. Nicknames were used instead of real names on the street. Kessel was shot. He was thought to have been shot at 36 Little Newport Street and his body dumped outside of London at St Albans in January 1936. This left the vice trade in central London with no dominant gang once again. During this period, starting in 1934, the Messina vice gang were becoming to become established. Many foreign prostitutes worked the Tottenham Court Road and Soho area. The ponces were usually Italian or French, or sometimes Caribbean. Soho was seen as a pleasure zone, and London's Latin Quarter had a long association with the French community and prostitution. It was asked, why go to Paris for a good time? Come to Soho instead. But the Messinas decided to avoid this area, as it would have become overcrowded, especially given the amount of foreign girls that the Messina brothers were importing. They wanted to avoid confrontation with the girls on their beats and their ponces, as this may draw attention to the Messina's activities. The Messina brothers decided to focus on the Mayfair area, which was London's most affluent area. They rented and bought properties in this area, and prostitutes recruited aboard into the properties. By 1938, they had 32 girls working in the rooms in the area. The girls were strictly controlled, and the brothers were making lots of money. They bought a share in an estate agent business to avoid problems renting flats, and of course such businesses provided a convenient front for prostitution. The Messina sex workers were more exotic. Many were French. In London, everything French was thought sexy. Many prostitutes have adopted a French name. It was thought that the French were more experimental in their sexual choices, and the French prostitutes would cater for niche requirements. In the Mayfair area, the police tended to turn a blind eye to sex work, thinking that the established high-class core girls operating 
in the Mayfair catered for the wealthy and they weren't going to cause problems. The machine is operated on the fringes of Mayfair in Maddox Street and between Regent Street and Bond Street and they soon began to bring the area into disrepute. Other prostitutes disliked the French prostitutes brought over to England. They were thought of as hard-bitten professionals who sport the trade by undercutting others. But the French tended not to drink or take drugs. They were thrifty, wanted to save up an nest egg, eventually to quit the game and return to France to buy a business or to get married. Eugenio Messino specialised in recruiting girls abroad. I don't think there was any particular target regarding the girls he tried to recruit. He dressed well, stayed in the best hotels and tried to charm any suitable female that he was able to ensnare. The technique used by his father, Gino, was to strike up an acquaintance with an attractive and possibly susceptible female and try to corrupt her. One of the girls was later reported to have said, For the first time in my life I felt that someone wanted me. His voice was soft, so ingratiating. I thought he was a real gentleman. This was clearly one of his more innocent victims. Eugenio would introduce the girl to his opulent lifestyle and seduced her, often with the promise of marriage. Once the female had become accustomed to the life of luxury, it would be suggested that she should think about a life in the UK. And then, by various means, depending on circumstances, should be introduced to the life of prostitution. Once the girls that the Messina brothers ensnared had come to the UK, the Messina charm would soon wear off and they were strictly dealt with. They were subject to bullying, beatings and the threat of disfigurement and ultimately death if they failed to do as they were told. Disfigurement, either by using a razor blade or vitriol, seemed to be the most common type of assault by pimps on their women. Although Eugenio would beat women with an electric flex or brand them with a hot iron. The Messinas cast a wide net. Any female they thought would bring in money would be a target. Often the girls were already prostitutes and quite hardened to the life. And they were told they could make good money in the UK and possibly be offered jobs running a brothel. The Messinas would recruit local prostitutes in the area they travelled on their jaunts in Europe. Other females that were corrupted by the Messinas were sometimes naive and innocent and once they'd been compromised, they went along with what they were told to do. To obtain permission to stay in, stay in the UK, the women would be married to vagrants and drunks who would be paid a small sum. The women were then legally British citizens after a marriage of convenience to a British man with full rights of nationality. The girls recruited by the Messinas were usually personable and attractive and able to manipulate a situation. And as already mentioned, the brothers all married women who were promptly put to work as prostitutes when they arrived in the UK. Sex was just business to them. Marriages of convenience would have been organised by the Messinas. They were charged the women between £100 and £300 to be worked off when they started on the streets if they didn't have the money up front. Employment offices would be visited to enlist jobless men in order to uh, provide grooms for the marriages, the sham marriages. Grooms were paid a sum between £10 and £15 for their trouble. Partly as a demonstration of professional organisation by the gangs, it became increasingly popular to try to organise marriages abroad, less than half taking place in the UK. This would stop any possible police interference and would make it look like the grooms had met their wives while working abroad. When a girl arrived from abroad, they would find themselves in a country where they knew nobody and they had little knowledge of the language. They were dependent on their protector pimp, who would of course be the Messina brothers, who would provide them with clothes, a room and a watchful maid to report back. The women did as they were told. The threat of being striped by a razor made them compliant. Murder sometimes being necessary as an example. There were a spate of prostitute murders when the Messinas first took control in 1936. In April 1936, the News of the World was asking if there was a Jack the Strangler at large in central London. John Bull published an article entitled London's Murderland.
A well-documented murder at this time was that of Constance May Hines, also known as Dutch Lear. This was an old Compton Street Soho. The press claimed that her tongue had been mutilated, as she knew too much, the implication being that she had been killed as a warning to others. Other prostitutes murdered at this period were Jeanette Marie Cotton, who didn't have any convictions but was report, reputed to be working in Vice and had connections with Red Max Cassell. Paulette French-Marie Estelle, who was said to be a police informer. And there was Josephine French-Fifi Martin. These murders were all within a six-month period, 1935-36. In all of these murders, the police investigated intensively. It was said that Soho was turned upside down, and everyone who was a suspect was closely questioned and investigated. The motive for the murders was not thought to be sexual or robbery. The police questioned a list of over a hundred men who had assaulted prostitutes in London during the previous 18 months, but they came up with nothing and all the murders remained unsolved. The story put out by the media about a Soho strangler who murdered prostitutes was probably a, a false lead to deflect attention during a power struggle between those wanting to nob dominate the vice scene. Or maybe there was a serial killer. Or maybe there was no connection between them at all. The truth will not be known now, but what does seem sure is there was lots of disinformation at this time. There was a rumour that the Messinas used an assassin known as a Corsican, who would travel to the UK on a forged passport, and would often be back in Paris before the murder had been discovered. This, of course, could have been a rumour started by the Messinas themselves. The Messinas were now using the Soho area as they had become established, but their main focus being concentrated on the fringes of Mayfair. They would have nothing to do with a low-grade area such as Paddington, Elephant and Castle. The patch or the beat of an independent prostitute was jealously guarded, and the sales of them were well organised. The prostitute would pay a percentage of her earnings for an agreed number of months in return for protection by dominant gangs. The gangs would make sure there'd be no trouble for other, by, from other prostitutes in the neighbouring beats. This could prove an explanation for the unsolved murders, in that not everybody respected the demarcation of the beats. World War II provided the Messina brothers with the same opportunities that their father exploited during World War I. Although the five brothers were of an age to be conscripted, they, re they ignored any call-up papers and although warrants were issued for their arrest, the brothers ducked and dived and used corrupt methods, bribes, to avoid arrest. In February 1940, 26-year-old Marie-Julie Martha Hoogberg, also known as Martha, was recruited by the Messina gang. She had become a prostitute aged 15 years after her father died at Verdun, and after an abusive relationship with her stepfather when her mother relocated to Paris. After leaving home, Martha had travelled around, around working at the La Maison de Tolerance in Milan, Rome, Naples and Florence. It's interesting to note the relationship that Martha had with her first pimp, an older man named Georges. Against the advice of her fellow workers and the madame at the brothel where she was working at Florence, she went to join Georges in North Africa, working for an unhappy two years at Algiers and Tunis in North Africa, before returning to Paris with Georges, her pimp. When back in Paris, she thought the good money was to be made in the UK, so she invested half of her savings in organising a marriage convenience to a 63-year-old English drunk called Arthur Watts. This got her her British passport. When she first arrived in the UK, Martha operated in the Soho area from a flat in Carnaby Street and she would send money back to Georges in Paris. But this was before she found a new pimp and she would soon have an affair with this pimp, Eugenio Messina, and she moved into his apartment in Barclay Square, Mayfair. Martha continued to work, servicing customers and managing the girls and sometimes receiving a beating from Eugenio. Although he could be charming, he was a violent thug and unpredictable. Martha Watts, gaining notoriety of a sort on VE Day, 
Victory in Europe Day, when she was said to have serviced 49 customers on her shift, saying that she was disappointed not to have made it 50. But this doesn't seem possible when working out the timings. There were rules for girls that worked for the Messinas, such as they were not allowed to wear provocative clothing. And when they were with a customer, there was a 10-minute rule that they were to spend no longer than 10 minutes with a client. The girls were not permitted to stray beyond the boundaries of their given patch. And the girls' working hours were between 4pm and 6am. Given such a long working day, 14 hours, the girls were either working or sleeping. And they didn't have a chance to develop any kind of independent life. At the start of the war, the girls weren't allowed customers who were French or Italian or American, although the American rule was soon dropped on account of their spending power. Each girl was allocated a maid who was employed by their brothers to ensure that the 10-minute rule was observed and to report directly to the brothers, uh, so a, a spy on the girls. Despite the harsh regime, the girls did have money spent on them, clothing and jewellery and pocket money, worth thousands in today's money. Also, the girls had no shortages in a time of rationing regarding food as the brothers wanted to be sure that they remained healthy and good-looking. Interestingly, when conscription for women was introduced in the UK during December 1941 for unmarried women between 20 and 30, the prostitutes working the Messinas said that they were already working for the war effort as prostitutes. This seemed to satisfy the authorities, who must have feared that including them in the women's services would lead to contamination and demoralisation. The Sunday Times exposed this in an article in 1942, headed Reserved Occupations. By the end of the war, Eugenio Messino had 20 girls working directly for him. They earned an average of £100 a week from about a dozen clients a night. The girls kept half their takings, giving them £50 a week. This is when the average wage in the UK was £5 a week. So they were earning ten times the average wage. Eugenio's workers paid him whilst he was in prison and later after he fled to Europe after being exposed by Duncan Webb. Martha Watts calculated that she earned 150000 for him during the period 1940-55. to 55. Well, that figure would be worth millions today. But it seems that she was prone to exaggeration. In 1945, it, estim it was estimated that the Messina family had an income of £1,000 a week, which was laundered through restaurants and property and similar businesses. During the war, there was plenty of business for everybody and so many money-making opportunities. So there was little conflict between the gangsters as there was so much business, everybody was busy making money. But after the war, this changed and rival gangs began to view the Messinas as a target for takeover. Although most of the Soho prostitution was controlled by the Messinas, some pimps were trying to muscle their way in. One gang was run by a particularly nasty individual called Carmelo Vassallo. His history was similar to that of the Messinas. He was Maltese and with his brothers he had gone to Egypt trafficking women. He fled Egypt and made his way to the UK. The Vassallo gang had had a plan in 1947. They started driving around the streets used by the Messina girls, demanding protection money and threatening to carve them up if they did not pay a pound a day each. There's no proof that this was true, and it may have been a story made up by the Messinas to get the Vassillo gang arrested by the police, by police friendly to the Messinas. There had been confrontations between the Vassallo gang and the Messinas in the past. The Vassallo gang were convicted, but so was Eugenio Messina, who was the dominant brother in the gang, who received three years in prison as a result of his feud with the G. Uh, his, uh, uh, as a result of the feud, as he was convicted for grievous bodily harm, injuring Vassallo with a knife. There were other Maltese gangs trying to move into the area. Amabile Rica, or Ricky the Malt, was shot and stabbed to death by the Maltese, friendly with the Messinas. That was in 1947, I believe. Although Eugenio was a model prisoner, earning full remission, and being released in September 1950, Duncan, the Duncan Webb newspaper story was soon to force him to flee the UK. 
Detective Chief Inspector Bob Higgins had supervised the arrest of Carmelo uh, Vassello and Eugenio Messina in 1947, at a time when the Messinas were under pressure from other gangs trying to move in on parts of their business. At the same time, Higgins had been investigating the murders of two prostitutes, Rita Barrett, also known as Black Rita, and Rachel Fennick, also known as Ginger Ray. This seemed similar to an earlier time when there was a power struggle in 1936-37 and there were a number of prostitutes murdered and the same thing to be happening again in 1947-1948. Both of these murders were to remain unsolved. Rachel Fenwick had been born in the East End on the 19th of August 1907. She was a widow and had been a prostitute for 20 years in Soho. She had many convictions for prostitution and convictions for larceny, stealing from her customers. She was known as Ginger Ray or Red Ray on account of her auburn hair. And she was described as sociable and friendly and she was said to have enjoyed her lifestyle. She was well liked and would also always give small change to tramps or children, as did many prostitutes at that time. But Ray was also known to be stubborn and outspoken. Rachel was discovered murdered at a flat at 46 Broadwick Street on the 26th of September 1948. She had been savagely attacked with a long-bladed stiletto knife. It had not seemed like a sexual crime. Police thought that it was a contract killing. Ginger Ray died instantly, having been stabbed with a Mediterranean-style knife. A short-handed dagger with a curved heavy blade, designed to cut through muscle and bone. But when stabbed, can be twisted upwards, slitting the alternal organs such as the intestines, the liver, or lungs or heart, in one swift movement, making it a much-feared weapon. Ginger Ray's stomach had been split open. Suspicion fell on the Messina gang, who had been reputedly become associated with her. Whether they were pimping for her or just getting in protection money from her, it's not known. It was suggested that the Messina gang were issuing a clear message to one of the, to any of their working girls who stepped out of line, either by cutting off their tongues if they talked too much, gouging out their eyes if they'd seen something they shouldn't have, or in the case of Ginger Ray, the brutal warning about spilling your guts. Ray had been seen late the previous night at Brewer Street, which was her pitch to meet customers. Rachel was seen talking with a man in his thirties, well-built, six feet tall, well-dressed, and he seemed foreign, possibly Maltese. Rachel was an experienced prostitute and she knew her area well. She did not have anybody working with her as a maid or a pimp. She had had lots of offers of protection and it's possible that the Messina gang had approached her for a percentage as they were working in an area which they controlled. There would have been other independent prostitutes working in the area and they would have been similarly approached. Messina's prostitutes worked the same area as Rachel and although the Messina's girls were expected to solve their own problems on the street, a tough cookie like Rachel, popular in the area, may have caused them a problem and if she, if she refused to pay any tax to the Messinas, she may well have been made an example of. However, there's no proof that the Messina family had anything to do with her death. The police questioned all of her friends and contracts of uh, Rachel, and they were satisfied that none of them had anything to do with her murder. At the time, there was a number of prostitute murders, and there were rumours that Rachel was a police informer. There was another rumour that she'd been killed by a French gang, the remnants of the French-Algerian Micheletti gang. It was a time of flux for the vice trade in Soho. Eugenio was thought of as the leader of the Messina gang was in jail and there were tri rivals trying to move in on his territory. Other criminal gangs whose activities and protection rackets that could have crushed... Uh, there were other gangs that could have crushed the Messinas at any time, but they had wanted nothing to do with vice. There was the uneasy partnership between the crime bosses Jack Spot and Billy Hill. Spot and Hill, as I said, was not interested in prostitution, and the Messinas paid a tax to them in, in a, as a fee for operating vice in, the, in their area, in Soho. Everybody paid Hill and Spot for carrying out a business in the area, even the people selling food to the pigeons in Trafalgar Square.
the Messinas would have been tolerated as long as they paid to operate in the area. A number of prostitutes had been murdered. Margaret Cook in Carnaby Street on the 10th of November 1946. Margaret was a 30-year-old exotic dancer who was described by Frankie Fraser as taking off her clothes behind a fan. There was a description of a well-dressed man who police wanted to interview. Margaret was shot outside the Blue Lagoon Club in Carnaby Street. There was Frances Mitzi who was found strangled in her flat in Poland Street in Soho. There was Doris Green, Black Rita, in Rupert Street. Rita was uh, named after her black hair. She was a striking woman of six feet and a daughter of a police officer. Rita was therefore suspected of being a police informer and it was reported that she had refused to cooperate with the Messina brothers and had been killed in September 1947 to make an example of her. The police thought that she had been killed at random by a man who did not like prostitutes. But it was pointed out such men don't carry guns. Helen Freeman, or Russian Dora, was killed in September 1948. Helen was aged 60 and was found stabbed at a flat in Long Acre, Covent Garden, where the Sainsbury's shop is today on the corner. Or was it a Tesco? Again, she was thought to be a police informer or a blackmailer. She had been a prostitute for over 30 years. She was very fashionable and took, and took a great care of her appearance, which made her uh, appear younger than her 60 years. Despite police statements saying that the killers of Dora, Ginger Ray, Margaret Cook were killed by an unknown sadistic killer, the name of Teddy Machen, a Soho informer, also known as Terrible Ted, come up as a paid killer by some people. Machen was a well-known gangster who could be hired as an assassin. People that knew Machen said that if Machen killed them, it would have been purely business. There was a number of unsolved murders, although there's no evidence that the Messina gang or any other gang was involved. Although it would be an option to resort to murder when taking care of business, and the murders left no clues, which meant they could have been professional hits. So by 1949, the Messina brothers were by far the largest vice gang in central London. It's thought that the brothers controlled 30 brothels in Mayfair and had a total of 200 girls working for them. However, thanks to Duncan Webb's journalism, by the late 1950, the four Messina brothers had been forced out of the country. But this did not seem to stop the gang's activities, which carried on pretty much as normal. Bent law firms would liaise with the Messinas while they were abroad. Money would be taken out and delivered to them. One result of the newspaper article, written by Webb, was that people would come down to visit the area, that the girls worked at Maddox Street or Bond Street. They would try to spot the working girls. Martha Watts, Blanche Kostaki and Janine Gilson had all appeared in court to give evidence against the Vasilo gang and they'd all appeared in Webb's article, they were known as the Queens of Maddox Street. The women also received many letters of men wanting to help them. Questions were being asked as to why nothing had been done to stop the vice trade in central London. And questions were being asked, have corrupt police been allowing the trade to continue unhindered? The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police decided that the law gave police too few powers to take action against the trade. For example, a prostitute on the street soliciting. If arrested, the police would have to prove the offence, after which the offender would be given a £2 fine and should be out on the street again in no time. It was also claimed that members of the public were rarely prepared to give evidence in such cases, so arresting the women for prostitution was futile. On saying that, given the records of prostitutes such as Martha Watts or Ginger Ray, they were arrested and charged many times. Martha Watts was said to have 400 convictions for prostitution. There was said to be a rota for arresting women for prostitution organised between the vice gangs and the police, so that no woman would be arrested more than once every couple of weeks. It was suggested also that the Messina brothers had been allowed to flee the country tipped off by corrupt police officers. 
Whatever the truth, the law seemed to be very slow to act if it was serious in bringing the Messinas to justice. Usually there was a saying in the flying squad, nick them first and get the evidence later. But this did not happen in the case of the Messinas, and they were given the chance to flee the country. Their bent solicitor William Webb advised them to stay out of the country until the fuss blew over. While his brothers had fled the country, after being named in Duncan Webb's expose in the newspapers, Alfredo Messina had not had his name in the news. He had not been mentioned, and he must have thought that he had escaped detection. But six months later, on the 19th of March, 1951, he got a phone call from Superintendent Mahoon, who was investigating the vice ring, telling him that his partner Hermione Hinden had been a prostitute for 13 years and that he was living on her immoral earnings. Alfredo had thought the police had lost interest in him, but they'd been watching and they got the evidence they needed to convict him for living off immoral earnings. When the police went to interview him, he tried to bribe them and at the Old Bailey in May 1951 he was sentenced to jail. On his release he settled in Brentford on the money he had required and he died there of a stroke in August 1963. There had been attempts to deport him, but as he had a bent British passport, he wasn't deported. And he was buried in the family vault that had been purchased after his father died in 1946 at Gunnersbury Cemetery. Those now running the Messina business were now the Corsican Tony Rossi, who called himself the Lion of Montmartre, although Duncan Webb referred to him as the Jekyll of Soho, and Anthony Mekaleth a cousin of the Messinas. There was also a host of other Maltese pimps and ponces running different parts of the Messina business and starting new ventures, such as a dating agency, dating prostitutes, and a, fl a flat renting agency, renting flats for prostitutes. When such businesses were busted by the police, there was usually a scapegoat to take the blame and to take the conviction. Those running the business also tried to bribe the police to avoid convictions. Martha Watts took over control of the increasingly young girls who the Eugenio was sending over from mainland Europe. Each girl kept her own accounts, such was the mix of loyalty and fear. It was not thought they'd skimmed for themselves. In every time they earned a thousand pound, their reward was a trip to Paris to see Eugenio. The Messinas had fled to Europe. Eugenio and Carmelo travelled together to France, Switzerland, Belgium and Holland. Salvatore stayed in Marseille. Attilio was also thought to be in the south of France somewhere. Eugenio and Carmelo controlled the Messino gang from Paris until Eugenio was kidnapped in November 1953 and only released after a £2,000 payment, after which they speedily relocated to Switzerland and then again they relocated to Belgium, where the law and prostitution was more relaxed. There were whispers that Duncan Webb had been involved in the kidnapped after making contact with a Sicilian gang that wanted to obtain protection money for the Messinas. Eugenio would still visit the UK on a fake British passport issued to Alexandra Miller. He'd come across looking at buying up properties in Mayfair to be used as brothels. One that he was known to have bought would have been at 39 Curzon Street. Attilio Messino had also slipped back in the UK under a bent passport and lived at a house called The Hideaway at Bourne End, Buckinghamshire. <coughs> the police knew that he'd been receiving money from the corrupt solicitors who sent a clerk, a Mr Watson, abroad to deliver money to the Messinas. It was training this clerk, Mr Watson, that led the police to Attilio Messina. He was arrested in October 1951 and convicted of living on the immoral earnings of Rubinia Torrance, going to jail for six months. Attempts were then made to deport him, which failed. The Messina gang not only employed bent corrupt solicitors, their legal representative in court, their barrister, seemed either corrupt or incompetent also. Their barrister was John Scott Henderson, QC. His moment of fame came to chair the inquiry into the guilt of Timothy Evans, convicted of killing his wife and baby at 10 Rillington Place, Notting Hill, in 1949. He found Evans guilty, 
although there was hardly another person in the country that believed that. And Sidney Silverman MP was quoted as saying that no honest man on the evidence before Scott Henderson could have made the report that he made. He must have known it not to be true. Despite Scott Henderson's report, which seems to have been ignored, Evans was granted a posthumous pardon. So Scott Henderson was either staggeringly incompetent or corrupt, or both. There seemed to be a lot of solicitors who became too close to their underworld clients for their own good. And several solicitors were corrupted by the Messinas. They were being conduits to send bribes to corrupt policemen to ensure brothels would not be raided, watering down evidence, tipping off club owners of raids, and arranging a road system of arrests of uh, prostitutes. Solicitor William Webb and his clerk, Mr Watson, were crooked and were struck off after they were caught ferrying money and intelligence from the UK to where the Messinas were staying in Europe. During the mid to late 1950s, it was said that some uniformed patrolmen in Soho were receiving £60 a week in bribes, which was six times their normal wage. Attilio, also known as Raymond Maynard, continued to exploit vulnerable women and was arrested again in 1959 for living off immoral earnings. In court, Attilio claimed to make his money from an antiques business in Fulham. He'd been doing this for the previous seven years, according to him. The police retorted that there was a second-hand shop in Fulham, which he was referring to, which is always closed and does no business. It was clearly a front, and Attilio was living off prostitution. Attilio was convicted of procuring young women for prostitution, keeping them prisoner and terrorising them. He was sentenced to four years with a recommendation for a deportation again. And on the 17th of November 1961, Attilio, now released from jail aged 51 years of age, was finally deported to Italy. It is unknown what he got up to over the next 30 years, but he died in May 1991 in Italy. There is a postscript here to Attilio, or Raymond Maynard. In April 2009, a body of a recluse named Raymond Maynard was found in a garage of a house in Oxford. He had died two months previously. The body was that of a former psychiatric nurse and a self-taught constant pianist, who had been born on the 21st of April 1938 in Chelsea. Raymond Maynard was a strange character who called himself various names. He had tattooed eyebrows and had recently taken to uh, dressing just in a shell suit. He left his home called Wuthering Heights to some former patients. He was clearly an eccentric person. Documentation later found at the house showed that he was the son of Attilio Messina, aka Mr Maynard, and Rabina Torrance. After Attilio was reported in 1961, Rabina stayed in the UK and settled down. She married a local man and ran an antique shop at Henley-on-Thames. She died at Henley on the 30th of August 1992. In Belgium, Eugenio and Carmelo were believed to be East German spies after they were caught trying to recruit East German girls as prostitutes. Telephone operators reported that frequent phone calls between East Germany and the two and informed the authorities. They were closely watched and found him making regular trips to the UK. And then they realised that Belgian girls had been disappearing from their homes. The brothers became part of an intensive surveillance operation and it became clear what the brothers were up to. On the 31st of August 1955, Eugenio and Carmelo were arrested and charged with trafficking and carrying firearms and other charges. It was this arrest that exposed the extent of their property portfolio in London. The deeds of the property that they owned were found in a safe along with detailed reports gang members had sent them. They were jailed, Eugenio for seven years, being freed in 1959 when he was taken to Italy and deported. He then started importing drugs from Afghanistan. Carmelo only served time served and was deported to Italy. He next serviced in London in 1958, where he was arrested as an illegal immigrant. After a six-month sentence, he was deported during March 1959 to Sicily, where he had to report to the local police each day. 
Carmelo had a stroke and died during September 1959, aged 43 years of age. Eugenio Messino later went to go and live in Italy, at San Remo, and on the 21st of March 1970, he married a 39-year-old Marie-Therese Vever. She had worked as a Messina prostitute at Curzon Street under the name Mary Smith. Eugenio died on his, ma- uh, on his marriage night. When his surviving brothers, Salvatore and Artilio, came to pay their respects, they found that the house had been looted. Eugenio's fortune was estimated at being anything between the low end of 1 million and to a high end of 17 million. There was a long battle over Eugenio's inheritance with his wife of less than a day, after which Salvatore seemed to disappear. It was thought somewhere in Italy, and Attilio, as stated, died in Italy in 1991. Martha Watts had by the 1970s gone into mental and physical decline. She wrote her memoirs in which she was selected of what she decided to write about. The book, The Men in My Life, was published in 1960. The vice trade in 1960 was controlled by the Maltese appointed by the brothers that had moved in from the east end of London. Central London was wide open now that Billy Hill, Jack Spot had retired and the Messinas had faded away. On the 15th of July 1956, Duncan Webb targeted those running the Messina gang, Tony Mikalaf and Tony Rossi. The People newspaper had a headline, Arrest This Beast, together with a photograph of Mikalaf. Webb was unaware that criminal proceedings were in progress against Mikalev, and these now had to be dropped, as he could not be assured of a fair trial of the, after, the, after the publicity of being on the front page of the, the People newspaper, being called a beast. Mikalev and Rossi had proved incapable of managing the Messina business efficiently, and Bernie Silver stepped up to take over the running of what was left of the Messina vice operation with his gang known as the Syndicate. Bernie Silvers had been working for the Messinas. He ran clubs and brothels in the Brick Lane area of the East End of London and been acting as an estate agent, letting out rooms to prostitutes at exorbitant prices and collecting rents. He got convicted of this. The rent books only recorded a fraction of the actual rent, knocking off the last zero. So if the rent book showed £3 rent, the actual rent was £30. Silver realised that when rivals fell out, it was bad for business, and he realised that rapprochement was necessary between the main operators in order to maximise profits. The Maltese diaspora that had been involved with the Messinas formed the syndicate, headed by the Jewish Bernie Silver and his deputy, Big Frank Nifsed. Even gang members from rival gangs, such as the Vasalo gang, became part of the gang, people such as Anti Magion. The syndicate flourished for the next 20 years with a little help from bent policemen and the Metropolitan Police. But so much publicity had been generated about the vice trade and the Messinas over the previous 10 years that the government had set up a committee to come up with solutions. 1957 saw the Wolfenden Report on Homosexuality and Prostitution. This led to lots of uh, legislation such as the 1959 Street Offences Act. This act saw prostitutes disappear overnight as it forced them off the streets. This saw the start of printed cards being left in telephone boxes and signed for models in windows with a red light. Anyway, to find out what happened next, you check out my podcast from February 2020, uh, the one called Bernie Silver, the Epsom Salts and the Murder of Tommy Smithson. Anyhow, I'm going to try to make it uh, possible to contact me if for any questions on the website, which I'll be having uh, having up very shortly. And so I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Damselfly again for providing the background music. Until next time, I'll say goodbye and thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>